Let me talk for a minute about uh, the goals in this class. How will we know that this was successful when we're done? Um, first goal I have is to show you the biblical calling to engage in these conversations. So I'm going to call this the need to. <laughs> I would like to show you and persuade you from scriptures that we need to have these conversations, that none of us should believe this is not for me. That's somebody else's spiritual gift. That's somebody else's calling. That's how somebody else is wired. What you're thinking there, I probably agree with. Not all of us are going to want to take the debate stage and engage in philosophical debates with philosophers and theologians about the nuances of the existence of God and blah. I agree. That may not be for you. It may not be your calling. And that's not what this class is about at all. This class is about uh, conversations about the faith. Christianity is a set of truths handed down from God to us, and it's what we say we believe. And so these conversations may start about our faith. Well, what do you believe? What, what's your experience? What's your story? But we need the ability to turn these conversations into conversations about the faith about the truths of Christianity that are applicable whether or not somebody's life is just like mine or super, super different from mine. And, and we need to know that the Bible has called us. We need to engage in those conversations. My second goal is to equip you with the biblical information and the wisdom that is useful for these conversations. So I'm going to call that the prepared to. Once you believe that you need to have these conversations, it is good to be prepared for these conversations. And so my goal is to make you feel like scripture and derivative wisdom from scripture, uh, whether you call it good and necessary consequence, you call it taking various parts of scripture and putting them together. Um, so specific Bible verses and passages, but also more broadly, the teaching of scripture uh, these things prepare us for these conversations. They give us what we need in order to have them. When you're dealing, is, I was about to say especially with non-Christians, but I don't actually think that's true anymore. When you're dealing with most people, you're dealing people who have not considered what they believe. They have unconsidered beliefs. It's just default beliefs. Yeah, of course. And they've never really asked the question or done much thinking about why or what's the implication of that? What does that mean? What are the consequences? If I believe that, is the way I'm living consistent with what I believe? Uh, and so what we need to be prepared to do is to help them consider those things, to bring to light, usually with questions, the stuff that they haven't considered. Um, and we will all benefit from having some kind of framework, um, some sort of preparedness, so that when we get into these conversations, we're not afraid. We don't feel unprepared. I mean, how many times have you found yourself? I, I have a bachelor's degree in biblical studies. I have a master's degree in theology and extensive study in philosophy of religion and counseling and I have found myself in many conversations with unbelievers or with baby believers, 
and the conversation starts and I hear what they're saying and my first thought is, oh, I'm not the right person for this. We need somebody better for this. We need somebody who really knows what they're doing. This is a tough one. So I can't imagine how people who don't have the benefit of all of that education on this particular subject, don't y'all feel that way sometimes? Where you see the opportunity getting set up in front of you and your first thought is, oh, crap. <laughs> what, what do I do now? <laughs> I feel that way too. And if we go back to the Bible, we can... With this lens in mind, it's not that we're not in the Bible now. It's, it's what's called biblical theology. It's going to the Bible with a particular lens in mind. What am I looking for in the Bible? Well, what I want us to look for in the Bible is that which will prepare us to have these kinds of conversations. And then my third goal is to convince you that you can do it, that because you are prepared and because you are called to do it, you can actually defend the faith without being some kind of an expert. So I'm going to call this able to. I, I want this class to make you feel like I'm able to do that. When you have that first thought in your mind of, I am not the right person for this. The second thought is, well, now, wait a minute. Why not? God put me here with this opportunity. God called me to do this certain thing. I have some preparation and some biblical study for this. I I can do this. God is not putting me in a position of the impossible where I have to do something I'm not capable of doing. Um, Don't get me wrong. Those conversations are intimidating. They're always intimidating. They're intimidating for me. I I know guys that are absolutely amazing at these types of conversations. And I've talked to them. They still get little butterflies in their stomach. I've talked to women that do uh, uh, even like stuff that would just blow my mind, like street evangelism and door-to-door evangelism stuff. And they'll tell you, yeah, I get butterflies in my stomach when somebody actually opens the door. (laughs) It's like, wait, you went out to do this. You planned, you trained, you prepared for this, right? Um, And we'll talk about other reasons why, especially, because I'm not going to emphasize that side of it. That side of it is is valuable. I'm going to emphasize the part of it that all of us are called to do, which is the... um, the people that God puts in front of us for other reasons, because they're in our neighborhood, because they're in our HOA, because they're in our kid's school, because they're at our workplace, right? I, I, I want us to emphasize that part of it. The ones that will come up, I'm almost going to say more naturally. They come up supernaturally, but they come up naturally just in the course of life. Not, I'm going out looking for evangelistic opportunities. Uh, this stuff would re- will really help you when you engage in that. But I want all this stuff to be really useful for just the stuff that happens, because ultimately those conversations should not be as intimidating as they are. Um, it is the faith, the set of facts which are true, the, uh, what's handed down to us from God and from the apostles, but it is also our faith. And if we are secure in our faith, which we should all want to be, I know what I believe and why I believe it, then there's no reason we can't be secure in the faith (laughs) enough to share it with somebody else and to talk to somebody else about it. Uh, And so we don't have to be insecure about the faith because we can be strong and firm in our faith. And this is how we help people overcome unbelief. Um, Sharing the faith is how we get people in the doors of the church. It's how we get people to be open to 
deeper conversations about the gospel or to put themselves in a position like coming to weekly worship, even though they don't believe yet, so that they can have that drip effect and the power of scripture and the spirit in their lives or being open to more conversations with you or other Christians about what they believe, sparking that curiosity in them that God may use uh, to call them to himself. So especially for unbelievers, this is how we help overcome unbelief. I'm going to talk a ton about um, all, all of this is God doing and God driven and not in our hands. And that has incredible benefits for us. We have work to do and a part to play. It's not the changing hearts part. We can't do that. But the having conversations, exposing people to truth, asking them questions about what they believe and the consequences of those beliefs, that is a part that we can play in God's role to save people. So that is my goal for this class. What questions or comments or fears or concerns do you have about that? Great. All right, let's talk about some uh, terms and concepts for just a minute. Um, the, the, the term that gets used a lot is apologetics. And I'm fine if we use that term. It's a great word. It means defense, basically. To give an, to give an apology um, is to give an explanation. <laughs> That's really what the technical term apology means. So we get hung up because we think, well, real apologies don't have explanations. Yes, that's, that's what we mean. What we're actually saying is real repentance doesn't have explanations. But the technical term apology does mean defense. It does mean explaining or justifying why something is the way it is. Um, I'm not going to use that term apologetics much, and I'm not calling this class an apologetics class because I think for a lot of us, um, apologetics does, this is not a criticism, it's a distinction. A lot of times when people are talking about apologetics, they're getting into the deeply philosophical arguments. Prove the existence of God. Prove the existence of the universe. Prove the existence of, of truth and meaning itself. And that is a part of the apologetic effort is those deep philosophical discussions. That's not what I'm doing in this class at all. Um, along the way, I will mention some of those things, and if you have questions and want to touch on certain aspects of it, we can talk a little bit about it. I'll point you to the right resource, or we can have lunch to go into more detail, but that's not my goal. My goal is not that you will know all of the terms for the ontological arguments and that you will feel you know, equipped. To, not my goal. My goal is that you will know the need to and be prepared to and be able to engage in conversations with people about what you believe and why you believe it. Um, apologetic as a philosophical concept is a good one, though, so let's not get hung up on the word. Uh, it's an ancient idea. It's, it, it's pre-Christ, um, but it's basically saying, here's my defense for what I believe. And apologetic is, here's why I believe what I believe. You hear me use the phrase a lot. It's stolen from thousands of years. Know what you believe and why you believe it. Both of those things are important, the what we believe and the why we believe them. Uh, you will not often persuade people on the what you believe. <laughs> That's not an incredibly persuasive thing. The what, people believe all kinds of crazy stuff. Why do I believe it? And if the answer is ultimately because it's rational, because it's the only thing that makes sense, because if God were to speak at all, right, this is the way it all works, we'll get into that stuff. But 
the, the, the rationality of it, the reasonableness of your faith. I'm not a blind faith zealot. I'm not a, I believe whatever I feel. Actually, that's what the rest of the world is, right? I am a, no, let me just use the brain God gave me and think through what makes sense, what's possible, what's real, what's true. Uh, know what you believe and why you believe it. Uh, one of the famous names in apologetics is a guy named Cornelius Van Til, and he reminds us that um, these types of conversations are not just about different propositions, my facts against your facts. These kinds of conversations are about entire ways of thinking. So you hear the word worldview used a lot. I don't use that word a ton. I, I, I don't love the word. I think a lot of um, unhelpful meanings have been imported into it. But entire ways of thinking, not just my facts, but that there are facts, the nature of facts, how we think about facts. Uh, apologetics is the defense. This is Van Til. Apologetics is the vindication of the Christian philosophy of life against all of the non-Christian philosophies of life. Just as I think about life itself, what could be true, um, apologetics is just defending this way is true against that way, which is not true. And you can say that, but then you've got to be able to defend it. You have to be prepared to give some defense for that. Otherwise, it's just arguing feelings and opinions. And that's not the place you want to be, is arguing feelings and opinions. Uh, questions about that? And that's why, uh, that's a great point, because none of us, uh, most of us, I shouldn't say none, some of you probably do, but most people don't want to be um, semi-professional philosophers, right? Your goal is not to get into the work of philosophy, but the re and, and, and so the temptation would be, ah, I don't, a class like this is really not for me. Apologetics is really not for me because I just want to talk to people about Jesus and my love for Jesus and the Bible and what God, how amazing God is. I was like, Fantastic. Me too. I don't enjoy deep philosophical discussions despite the training. I just like arguing. Uh, and so that's why I got into philosophy. Um, the problem is you don't have to use the term, but if you don't, understand those aspects of philosophy, you can't ever get past that. It is just opinion versus opinion, and we're both labeling truth. And you need a little bit of philosophical awareness to say, well, okay, but in the world in which we live, let's talk, let's go down those two paths and see which one ends in madness and insanity. And that's a philosophical exercise, whether you ever want to use that term or not. Let me, here's your, your way of viewing the world. I'll put on those clothes. So now I view the world just the way you do. Now help me make some of these decisions. And where I end up is incomprehensible madness, 
not just bad decisions, utterly contradictory decisions, doing things that are the exact opposite of what you said you felt and believed at the beginning. That is a, a philosophical endeavor. So I don't, it, it's not a highfalutin endeavor. It's not a, it's not a complex intellectual endeavor. But it does require thought, using the brain that God gave us. Uh, and so we've got to be prepared. We've got to go back to the scriptures and say, how do I get there from normal human being biblical speak rather than lofty philosophical academic speak? Otherwise, you never get past that juncture. You can't make someone participate in a conversation yeah, with you. Exactly. So if they refuse to speak, then you, you've run up against a brick wall. Um, so this would really be when a person is sort of seeking out or has questions or is approaching you versus I think this, starting the conversation. This will be useful in all scenarios. Um, where starting the conversations happens most effectively, in my experience, is they've said something, they're on a whole different conversation, but they made a statement that you then can ask a question that turns their statement into this kind of conversation. It's not what they were looking for, but they opened the door, usually by making some blanket pronouncement. Well, we all know blah, 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 blah. Huh, tell me more about that. I, I actually never thought about that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, like, somebody who's genuinely seeking right. will maybe make it easier for that conversation right. to happen. Right. But somebody who's not seeking is still going to give you lots of opportunities. And I do. I, we we just have to acknowledge our cultural context, you guys. Which is, um, I I don't want to get into the looking at an individual case and deciding is this person an unbeliever or just such an unbelievably baby believer that they know nothing. I, I don't really care for the purposes of this class because the goal is they don't know what they believe and why they believe it. And part of what we can help them do to pursue Christ-likeness, either from darkness or from an itty, itty bit of light, is to take them down the paths of these conversations. Does that make sense? Um, I don't feel like we need to approach the conversations differently based on whether or not somebody thinks they're a Christian. I think our speech needs to be uh, gracious and winsome enough that it accommodates both those cases. Does that make sense? Question about, I know this is not the purpose of the class, but Question about your ability to be gracious and winsome. What? What? Living in right now, we're living in a time of, I mean, post-truth era. I mean, that it is there is no truth. And right. So we are engaging in these conversations with neighbors, with, with unbelievers, getting over the well. I mean, that's what you believe. And that's fine. Like, like there, because there is no objective truth. It doesn't really matter. Like, it doesn't matter. You're you're you. I'm me. Love is love. Truth is truth. Science is not. I mean. So getting over that hump seems like that is going to be the, the trickiest. I, mean, I just think about our conversations with the owing. You know, right. They, they don't believe in truth. They don't mean they, they believe in their truth, but it can be different from your truth, and therefore and there is no... they believe our truth. It's just no judgment there. Great. Hopefully this class will better okay. prepare you for those conversations. 
because um, that's a category that we have to deal with. So my goal, we're going to lay out some biblical frameworks around these types of conversations. We're going to talk about biblical answers to key philosophical questions like truth and how to have those conversations. We're going to talk about some process questions if you're dealing with people coming from that perspective or if you're dealing with people coming from Islam or you're dealing with people coming from Jehovah's Witness. Uh, what, what's a reasonable process to take based on what they think, sort of the order of these conversations that can be helpful? You can't always choose them. You get the conversation you get sometimes, right? And so you've got to be prepared for all of them. But sometimes there can be real value in the conversation. They start um, trying to see if you can get the conversation to back up a step, right? I don't want to talk about our truth. Let's just talk about the nature of truth. Is that that's just because I, I, I'm not quite sure how to engage with you on the other conversation until I feel like we at least understand this other thing. Uh, so we will we will talk about those sorts of things and and get pretty I hope helpfully and practically specific. Um, let's talk about three uses for what you learn here. Um, what are three uses or uh, purposes of these kinds of conversations? Um, one is what we'll call proof. So this is the positive case for Christianity, reasons why Christianity is true. Matt, do you have John 14, 8 through 11? Yes, Paul. Would you be so kind as to read that for us, Matt? Uh, Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long, and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. So notice what Jesus does. Philip asks this question that's basically like, show me. Prove to me that this is true. Why should I believe this? And rather than Jesus saying, no, shut up, believe or don't believe, Jesus actually offers multiple different positive proofs in this one thing. He offers the person of himself. He offers words, words of truth, and he offers works. He says, you can look at that. You can look at who I am. You can look at the things that God says, and you can look at the things that I do, which I could not do if the Father were not in me. And so Jesus gives this multifaceted uh, approach to proving what Philip is looking for, uh, and, and that we, therefore, should feel comfortable doing the same. Second, defense or defense, as we say in the South, um, answering objections that others raise about Christianity. So these are the pot shots people take at Christianity. Well, it can't be true because, or, well, it's just, right, all these disproofs, the, the, the things they have in their mind of, we know they don't believe Christianity because they have the sin of unbelief. But they don't know that. They think they don't believe Christianity because the Gospels are corrupted and can't be trusted, because there's evil in the world, because whatever 
whatever problem it is intellectually that they think is true, they would say, well, that's why I don't believe. And so part of what we do is answer the objections others raise about Christianity. Renee, can you read Romans 9, 14 through 18? What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. This is one of my favorite aspects of the book of Romans. One of the things that I really like about the way Paul writes is that he anticipates these objections all the time. So if you look across almost every chapter in Romans, you'll see Paul say at least once something like, what shall we say then? Which is kind of a, oh, but now what about this? What about that? Because Paul's laying out this defense of the Christian faith, particularly against his Jewish brethren and what's wrong with their thinking and what's right about Christ. But you would say, and then he answers it, but you would say, and then he answers it. And so this is that example of, of, of Paul's on the defense, <laughs> They are making objections. In this case, well, it can't be true because that eliminates free will. What will you say then? Does God? And I say, oh, well, yeah, okay. I see your objection. Now, let me answer it. Let me engage in getting you an answer there. So whether it's sovereignty versus free will, why there's evil in the world, how the scriptures can be trusted, oppression of women, slavery, polygamy, all these difficult things in the Bible, we've got to be prepared that when people say, that's why I don't believe, we have the winsome answer for, actually, that's not what you think it is. So let me explain what that is, and then you can decide whether or not you believe. Because we know when we break down all these arguments, which I'll talk about later, they're still not going to believe. We're just going to broken down all their arguments, which is a step God may use in a process to bring them to belief. It is not what will make them believe. Um, so defense is second. So then third, as you can probably expect, is offense. One of the purposes of these uh, types of conversations is to go on the attack against non-Christian thought. And that's more important if you are wired for peace for going along, for not making waves, if you are wired for not being a troubler of Israel, which many of you are, which is a good thing, but you need to hear that going on the attack when what you're attacking is non-Christian thought is really important. Uh, one of y'all have 1 Corinthians 10, 3 through 6? And all ate the same spiritual No. Did I mean 2 Corinthians? For though we walk in the flesh is what the words I was expecting. <laughs> yeah, Corinthians. yeah, one and two. Uh, Second yeah. Corinthians 10, sorry. For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ, being ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. All right, so hear me very clearly on the offensive point. This is not about winning against people. This is about winning against ideas 
in order that people may be one. And so how we do this will matter. And I'll talk a lot about how we do this. But the fact is that many people use examples of this being done poorly to say that's why we shouldn't do it. The fact that we engage in positive defenses of the faith and it goes badly because somebody acts like a jerk is not a reason why we shouldn't do it well. It's a reason why we should do it well, not not at all. Um, we can show... Why is this important? Why is going on the attack, going on offense, something that matters? It matters because by showing inconsistencies in the non-Christian beliefs, think of it this way. Paint a word picture in mind when you think, I just want to do nice things for this person. I don't want to do mean things like argue with them about what they believe. I know that feeling. Believe it or not, even with my personality, I have a very strong feeling toward that. And the image you have to get in your mind instead is that this person is wrapped so tightly in wires of lies that they are choking and dying. This person is being killed by the lies that are choking them. And what you are doing as you go on the attack against unbelief is you are unraveling some of the wires that will be their death. You are doing what you can do to try and set them free. What will set them free? The truth. You will know the truth and the truth will set you free. These people are entangled in lies. And you are doing what little part God has given you to do to swat away some of those entanglements and give them an opportunity to be free. Uh, who's got Acts 17? Is that Daphne? Yes. 17, 22 to 25. Therefore, you worship as unknown. This I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. You see what Paul did there? He goes into their world and he sees what's not true. He sees this altar to the unknown God. And he says, hey, uh, I perceive you're a uh, religious folk, huh? <laughs> Let's talk about truth. He engages offensively in that conversation. These are not three different conversations. These are three different capabilities that are required for the all kinds of what you believe and why you believe it conversations. There will be aspects of these, all three, in most conversations that you have. You may have started out positively. Somebody said something that was absolutely insane, and you said, tell me more about that. Let's talk about that. And so now you're, you're on the offense, right? You're going to engage in this conversation. And then as they realize that you're involving the Bible, they say, well, I mean, yeah, that's what the Bible says, but we all know the books of the Bible have been corrupted. Now I've got to deal with the defensive part, which is, oh, You've done a lot of studying on ancient manuscripts. Tell me about that. Right? And you wouldn't say it just like that, but you wouldn't say it. Uh, 
<laughs> I mean, it's amazing. Uh, uh, just pot calling the kettle black. The confidence with which people will speak uh, in areas where they should have no confidence, yeah. right? And so people will just throw stuff out of, yes, it is this way. And if, a, if a, somebody who actually knows something can just play dumb for a minute and say, yeah, really, I'd, I'd like to know more about that. T- tell me about your study on that or what you've read on that. Tell me yeah, your research. Tell me. They just repeat what they've heard. They just repeat what they've heard. I mean, I like how you keep saying ask a question. Because a lot of these thoughts that are in people's heads, once they start saying them out loud, sometimes that is even, that gives them pause about what they really believe. Once they start verbalizing, they're like, and they obviously start getting more defensive. But like, it's, even that is, Questions keep people from having to feel immediately defensive unless it is clear to them that you're using questions is just a tactic that you're trained in. You don't actually care about their answer. You're just using the questions because that's the next step in the process, and that's not what we're going to be about at all. We're going to be about you genuinely want to know the answers to these questions, and that's why you ask them. You love this person. You've heard what they said. You know what's true. You know this is a lie, and so I genuinely want to know more about how you got here. And maybe God would use me to help you not be here. Right? That's, that's the approach. If you look like a professionally trained apologist, people get very defensive with good reason because a lot of professionally trained apologists are keeping score. You know, that's a great point because it's oftentimes we are on the defense, which I hate. Like, well, I, you know, like I have to defend the fact that I'm a believer. And I like that because as soon as you say, tell me why you feel it, or maybe tell me why you don't believe, then you kind of get an idea where they come versus yep. the first thing you got to do is feel like you're defending, right? And That's you- right. And then you will have more credibility when you do get to the step of defending right. because you, you're, you're prepared with these right. answers. And so right. you, it's, it's not like, oh, you know, I've never thought about that. Actually, I have thought a fair amount about yeah. this. Yeah. I, you know, I, I know I've got errors somewhere, but... Here's what it seems to me. Um, I think someone like Paul, because he didn't believe, he knows all the things that people are going to bring up. Yeah, that's why he does the, yeah, he <laughs> but you will say. Yeah, yeah. He already knows every argument they're probably going to bring up, right? Yep. Um, all right, let's talk for a minute about the biblical calling, because as, as I said, one of my key goals is to persuade you that these are conversations that you need to have. And there's nowhere else appropriate to begin that discussion than Scripture itself. There are lots of biblical passages that command these kinds of conversations, and there are lots of biblical passages that give us the example of these kinds of conversations. And so I want to do a brief survey of some of those passages so that we can feel confident that it's not, we're not just relying on the Great Commission, and then we can argue about, well, was that to the disciples, or was that to... No, no, no. The, the case of the New Testament is incredibly clear, that God's people are called to engage in these types of conversations. So let's just gain some of that clarity so that we can uh, be confident in our persuasion that we should have them. He's got First Peter three fifteen and 16. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, 
Those who revile your good behavior may be Great, thank you. Uh, as we go through these passages, I want to tug on various threads in each one of them because they will have similar things to contribute and they will have unique contributions to the discussion. Um, so I want to I want to talk about each of those. So as we deal with First Peter for a minute, let's talk about the context. What is the context of his apologetic command here? What's happening to the believers and what is he talking about about their experience that then causes him to say this? It's persecution. Yeah. If you go back a phrase before what I asked Megan to read, it says, have no fear of them. Them is those who slander you. Have no fear of those who slander you. Do not be troubled, but in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. How? Always being prepared to make a defense for anyone who at, right? So that, that context is this persecution. They were facing severe suffering, and out of that, Peter calls them to be prepared to offer a defense of the faith. We can't forget, you guys, the fallen world is at war with itself. It hates, oppresses, and fights against truth, which is reality. And so it's in this convoluted mess of because it's war against truth, it's war against against reality, but the world exists in reality. And so it's world against itself, and it's just this big mess. And so in this kind of world... These conversations are essential. They are part of our warfare against the fallen world. The other thing that I think this text shows us is a posture for these kinds of conversations. And that comes from the phrase, set, is it set apart or set Christ apart? It's set apart, Christ is Lord. The posture of our apologetic is setting Christ as Lord. He is our ultimate authority. We can play neutral for the sake of argument. We can play neutral if somebody arbitrarily tries to require of that us to even engage in a conversation. But eventually we have to keep pulling people back to there is no neutrality because Christ is Lord. Everything else is subservient. Christ is the ultimate authority. And so we don't have to be uh, angry about that. We don't have to be defensive about that. But we do have to recognize in what we say and in how we say it that all of it is submitted to the Lordship of Christ. We can actually undo um, what we're saying about the Lordship of Christ by the way that we defend the Lordship of Christ. If we don't argue in a way that demonstrates that Christ is Lord, how in the world would anybody believe us that Christ is Lord? If we make some other thing necessary to prove that Christ is true, we've said that thing is the most true thing, and that validates Christ. And so even in the way we discuss, we've got to be careful and thoughtful that, no, 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 I'm not not using this stuff to prove anything. The Bible says it's self-evident. It's on display. We're just talking through sort of the the evidences, the stuff after the fact that you could reason from that up to Christ, not that stuff sits atop Christ and validates his ministry. We'll talk a lot more about that later in in less confusing terms. Um, The other thing I think it shows us is the essence, (laughs) 
the essence of these kinds of apologetics, which is always be prepared. This one comes from uh, one of my seminary professors, Mike Kruger. But Peter assumes that you will respond, that you will have an argument, that you will be prepared, that as you see uh, the forces of untruth in this world, as you see the lies of the enemy, you'll engage, that you'll not just be ready to, but actually will respond to the lies of the world and the falsehoods of the world. That's the essence of what this is about, is that stuff matters. And so when I see it, I respond as someone who believes that it matters. The alternative is I see it and I say, doesn't matter. Not my problem. You can put a lot of different grace notes over top of it, but the melody of what you're singing is, it doesn't matter. And that's not true. It absolutely matters. And so that's why the rest of this starts to fall into place. And then the last thing I think this text shows us is the manner, the uh, manner of apologetics. Peter says, with gentleness and respect. So this is back related to the point I made a moment ago. You can actually um, defeat your own argument that Christ is Lord by being unchristlike in the way you make the argument that Christ is Lord. You're claiming that Christ is Lord not just over facts, but over heart change, over behaviors. And so you have to actually demonstrate a supernatural ability to respond if what you're trying to prove, quote unquote, is that the supernatural is true and changes hearts and that what God says is real. You cannot go into these discussions and act exactly the way the world acts and claim that Christ changes hearts and saves people. This is not, uh, it's an incongruous message there, so that one's not going to be very effective. I'll stop there as we, we're going to march through some more passages. Uh, what questions do you have about that one? So y'all save yours if you would. So I'll remember next week. Um, My truth, you know, like like Karen was saying, her neighbor, that's good for you. So they're already acknowledging that Christ is not Lord in that argument. Right. I guess they're not acknowledging it. They're acknowledging that something else is Lord, right? Right. And that's, when we get to the tactical part, that's what it's going to come to, is all of these discussions eventually end up in the same place, which is getting people to see they do have an ultimate authority. Everyone has an ultimate authority. Everyone. And so what we are ultimately trying to demonstrate, no matter their worldview, is they have one, and they should examine that one. And we have one, and we have examined it. So let's go through life with your ultimate authority and see what happens. And then let's go through life with my ultimate authority and see what happens. Which one is more reasonable? And if you hit the home run, which is you get them to admit they're equally reasonable, which they're not actually equally reasonable, but all you ever want from them is the acknowledgement that they're equally reasonable. Then you end up getting someone to say, 
maybe not one conversation, maybe five, the most important thing you can ever get a per- an unbeliever to say, which is, I don't want to believe. That's all you're trying to get to. They have all these reasons why they don't believe. And they go to sleep at night thinking that they are rational and reasonable and coherent and logical and smart not to believe. And all you're doing in these discussions is showing them none of that is true. None of it. You don't believe because you don't want to believe. Now, let me know, let me know if I can help further. <laughs> right? And I'm not saying it couldn't be a lightning bolt moment, but that's a long game. Because the humility you have to go through as that non-believer to say, maybe I am not Lord, and all that other stuff takes time, right? It's a long game. What you never know, it's, it's, don't get mad at me for being not careful with the language here. It's God's long game not yours. So you never know with an individual person where, what inning God's bringing you in from the bullpen. So when we approach some of these conversations and we, from our timidity (laughs) say, okay, I'm setting myself up for seven conversations here. And the person keeps lobbing you softballs. It's like, nope, nope. I'm in inning seven. I'm really close here. And you're like, no, 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 we're going to go way back here. You don't know. God may have used someone else to get them far into this game. So that, that's part of just being actually listening and actually caring about how they answer the questions you ask and not just putting people through a formula or a program. You're, you're dealing with human beings. Listen to where that human being is and make that decision. Um, but yes, on the whole, it is a long game in general, but it's God's long game. Great question. Other questions? And it's, and that's it, that, that sentence is so important to me because it protects from falling off either side of the horse. There are the people like me who want to be right more than anything else. And so our tendency is I owned you. We got into this debate and you looked wrong and I looked right when I'm not trying to win against people. I'm trying to win against lies in order that some people might be won to Christ. But also, it's helpful for the other side of the horse that says, well, it's not very nice. It's not very nice to go tell people that everything they believe is wrong and their life is a sham. Well, then don't say it that way. (laughs) Find a more gracious way to say it. But it's really not very nice to let people be pulled down into the depths of Hades with lies wrapped around their neck. And you said, it doesn't matter very much to me. 